Hello everyone, and thank you for listening to True Crime Cam. This week we're gonna do some r slash let's not meet stories. Also, if you're interested in hearing about the Patreon updates and what's to come with that, then please stick around to the end. Alright, let's get started. This first let's not meet story is titled, The Lady at My Door. Back when I lived in the rural Midwest about 10 years ago, I lived in a house right off the highway. My house was right between one town and another, almost right on the county line. Our house had a big circle driveway. If you drove in the driveway, you would be going straight towards our barn. If you curved right, you could pull into our garage. If you went past the garage, you could circle around in front of the house and pull back out to where you started. Our house had two large double doors in the front, which we rarely used. We always used the door that was inside the garage. One night, it was very late. My doorbell rang. My husband, my three-year-old daughter, and I were all asleep. It woke me up, and I thought maybe I was dreaming. It rang again. I woke my husband up. He thought I was hearing things until it rang again. It was very dark outside, but we have a dusk-to-dawn light, so most of the driveway is pretty lit up. Unfortunately, you can't really see the front doors unless you open the door and look out. You can open just one at a time, or you can open them both by using two latch-like things that are in the top and the bottom of one of the doors. My husband gets up, and I follow him. He decides he is going to open the door. I want to call the cops, but because we live on the county line, we know it's going to be a while before they can get there. He opens the door to a girl, maybe early 20s. She looks normal except for the fact that she's standing at my door in the middle of the night. I look past her and her car is pulled into my driveway just off the road, not up to the house, not around the circle. She says she needs to use the phone. She says her car battery died or something. She's not sure, but she can't get it to start. I told my husband, no fucking way. This is how horror movies start. And we offered to call the cops, which would be the county sheriff. She asks over and over, but I am not letting her in. We tell her we will call and she kind of stomps off. We watch her walk back to the car, maybe 50 feet away. I can see her car. I can see her. I call the cops. They say they will be there as soon as they can, about 15 minutes. They don't sound very concerned at this point. I'm not really either. I mean, it's just a girl. She probably does have a dead battery. She opens the trunk. No lights come on. She rummages around in the trunk. Then the driver's side door opens. Out steps a guy. Then the back passenger door opens. Out steps one more guy. They all rummage around the trunk. No lights on. I can't hear anything. I can't hear them talking and I can't tell what they are doing. They all get back in the car. Now at this point, maybe five minutes has gone by and I am silently praying that the sheriff puts his foot on the gas and gets here quick, but I know it's going to be another 10 minutes or so. They just sit there in the car, lights off, not moving. I can't see them when they are in the car, but I know they are in there. I know they didn't get out of the car and walk past the house because they would have had to walk right under the dust to dawn light. I would have seen them. I think I see the driver light a smoke. That part I'm not sure about. Then I see something, someone, walking towards the car from the right, coming from the direction of the barn. It's a man. I have no idea who this man is. We don't have a neighbor for at least a mile, and he's coming from the back of my property, which ends in a creek. He walks under the dust to dawn light, straight to the car. He doesn't look at the house. He just walks to the car and gets in the back. 
The car starts up, and they slowly back out of my driveway and head north. The cops arrive about 10 minutes later, and at this point, I am freaking out. They search around, but can't find anything. Ask us if we got a license plate, but they were parked too far away. Tell us to call if they come back. Sure, buddy, thanks. My husband goes and gets his shotgun from the shop on our property, and we try to go back to sleep. They never came back. I don't know who those people were, and I don't know what they wanted. Creepy people in a car without a dead battery? Let's never, ever meet again. This reminds me that I have heard so many horror stories of strangers coming to people's doors and pretending to be a helpless woman or the police when in fact they're actually trying to get in your house and cause you harm or steal something. Whatever it may be, if anyone is knocking on your door that you don't know, make sure you do not open the door and if things are really suspicious, then immediately call the police because it is never worth it to put your life or your family's life in any sort of danger. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, this next story is titled Creepy Encounter During Urban Exploration. This story comes from Belgium and took place in 2020 during COVID confinements. I was 20 back then. At the time, because of the severity of the pandemic in Belgium, the law stated that you could only go out to practice sports or to work. So I took the habit of meeting with a friend, Sully, to go out for runs and to practice all kinds of sports in general. Both of us were quite fond of urban exploration, and knew a spot in the outskirts of Brussels, consisting of an old sports and wellness center, where we took the habit to hang out after our runs. To get into the spot, you must go through a hole in a fence on a street, cross a small portion of woods, and you'll come up on a football pitch and tennis courts, and up on a hill is the center, which is an old four-story building. The whole center takes a whole street block. On that day, we had just finished a five-kilometer run, and we went to our spot as usual. We were walking to the building since it was about to rain when we saw two teenagers sitting on the roof edge, and I remember thinking that it bothered me since we were planning to go to the roof as well. So we went to the hall area to wait for a bit in the hopes that the people would leave. In the hall area, you have a clear view into the kitchen, which you must go through if you want to go to the roof. You can also see into another smaller hall and into the dining room. Sully was rolling himself a cigarette whilst I was gathering two chairs and an office table for us to sit. This next part gives me chills to this day. As I finished setting everything up, I remember starting to feel unwell, as if I was being watched, and not in a good way. That's when I looked at the kitchen and saw, for a brief moment, a head sticking out of the doorframe and staring right at us. It was a man. I couldn't say what age he was since he was all dirty. But the one thing I remember is that he had an exaggerated, happy expression on his face. Like he had just found exactly what he was looking for. At that moment, I just froze and I was unable to react bravely to the situation. I leaned slowly towards Sully, all whilst keeping eye contact with the man, and told him very calmly that we had to go immediately. 
I tend to make lots of jokes to all my friends, and especially to Sully. But when he saw the look I had on my face when I told him we had to leave, he didn't say a word. Just took his backpack and stood up. We ran to the football pitch and saw that the two teenagers were still on the roof. So we started to yell at them, asking if the man was with them, or if they saw him. But they answered that no, they hadn't seen anyone, and had come by themselves. So if someone was there, he wasn't with them. We told them it was probably better for them to leave as well, since we didn't know what the man in the lobby was up to. They told us they would be fine and they would leave a bit after. We decided to leave since we had already told them what we saw, and we also had already been out for very long so it wasn't very legal with confinement rules. As we were walking towards the woods, I turned back and I could swear I saw a silhouette standing in front of the staircase leading to the roof. But my mind didn't quite react, and I just left alongside with my friend. I was so shocked, because nothing like it had happened to me before, that I just decided not to talk about it to anyone in fear of them not believing me, or possibly making fun of me. My friend Sully is the only one who was there. He didn't take a look at the man, but he is as scared as me, just by seeing my own reaction at the time. I don't know what happened to these teenagers, but I found local articles and papers dating from that time about teenagers being chased by a crazy man in an abandoned building but the information given wasn't enough for me to be sure it was the same people and the same story. Okay, that story reminded me of my experience with a quote-unquote abandoned building. This happened like, it had to be like seven years ago, when my parents were still living in a rural part of a southern town, and it was so rural that there was quite a bit of abandoned buildings, and I really loved taking pictures of those sort of things at the time, so me and my friend Bree decided to drive around and find an abandoned building to explore. So we came across this house that was relatively small and the trees and grass were so tall around it that you could barely see the house. So we parked a little distance away and there was abandoned, you know, vehicles around it and other like metal and junk around the house. And we were 100% sure that this place was abandoned. The door is unlocked, of course, and we start exploring it. There's rotten food everywhere, trash, and also the second story was inaccessible because it had literally fallen through. There was clothes strewn everywhere, papers, trash, not a livable condition for anyone. So we're walking around, looking at everything, trying to stay away from the fallen second floor and the staircase that we would definitely fall through if we tried to go up. And I wanted to learn more about the house or the people who had lived here at one point, if I could, so I started looking at the papers on one of the kitchen tables, and it was a utility bill. As I'm reading it, my friend Bree opens the refrigerator, and there's a light that comes on. The fridge has power. Up until that point, we had no idea that this place had power, but all the food inside the fridge was spoiled rotten, like there was no edible food. And I continue to read this utility bill and I see that the due date is the same day that we were there. And as soon as I read that, I was like, oh my god, someone might be coming here or someone might be living here. And slowly it started, we started to see the little clues that someone still might be living here and we just broke into their home possibly. So we quickly ran out of there, drove away and never looked back. But I'll never forget the eerie feeling that I got when I looked and saw that utility bill and how the date was that day. 
like someone could easily just be storing dead bodies in that house and no one would know or someone could be dead in there and no one would know and also there was a bunch of creepy photos hanging on the wall of people from like the early 1900s but yeah if you're ever exploring abandoned buildings make sure that they are 100 abandoned and actually maybe just don't do it at all because you can get arrested okay this next story is titled crazy religious ex-boyfriend stalks me at night in college, a while ago now, I got into a relationship with a guy. He was fine until he found Jesus. He quickly went crazy, claiming demons spoke to him, trying to buy weapons from some shady friends we had, fantasizing about how he would hurt people, and became incredibly controlling and physically abusive, nearly killing me a few times. Needless to say, I got the fuck out. After a few threats and really crazy behaviors, he left me alone for a while, and I thought that was that. I was heading to my dorm after a meeting one night when I decided to pass it and go to the student union, which was right down the street, to get some ice cream. As I passed the dorm, I heard steps behind me. I turned around, and I thought I saw someone in a white shirt duck behind a big signboard. I kept walking, listening carefully. I heard something move and whipped around again. There, a person, his size, staring at me from behind a tree. I couldn't see very well, but it really looked like him. I was mildly freaked out by then, but just walked a little faster. I'd hear the occasional footsteps and breathing behind me, but I didn't dare stop or let on that I knew someone, probably him, was there. I knew he owned a gun and would likely put a bullet into me given the chance. He was that psycho and upset that I dared to break up with him. I walked all the way to the Union and got some ice cream and just sat there in the store eating, unwilling to go back out into the unlit street in case it was my crazy, armed ex. I still hadn't mustered the nerve to head back when my phone buzzed. My heart just about fell out of my chest when I saw the message. It was some of my friends, a sweet couple. They'd been walking way behind me when they saw something that alarmed them enough to text me. Quote, your ex is walking around the street. They called me before I could even text them back. Quote, where are you? Your ex is prowling around here near your dorm. He was coming back from the direction of the Union. I think he had a gun. Was he with you? What's going on? Panicked, I assured them that I had not been with him. But someone who looked like him had been following me, and I was at the Union and was too scared to go back home. They practically yelled at me to stay there and not to go anywhere, and that they were coming. A few minutes later, they came running into the Union, breathless, eyes wide asking me why he was by my dorm and what had happened. This was possibly what scared me most of all. The boyfriend, who is a black belt in karate and is never scared, looked absolutely terrified. He was coiled into some kind of fighting stance and looking around wildly, afraid that my ex would appear with his gun. They told me they were taking me back to my dorm and calling the cops. They sandwiched me between them and we walked back to my dorm as quickly as we dared the boyfriend walking in front and yelling into the darkness that my ex had better not to try anything. I let the two of them into my dorm and we went up to my room, where my roommates put in a frantic call to the police. As we peeked out the windows facing the street and side of the dorm, there he was, lurking in the trees to the side of the dorm, looking up. A street light reflected something in his hand, something shiny. I saw him tug at the 22 I realized he was carrying and look up. We locked eyes and I saw something, this kind of rage in his eyes that froze me. In that moment, I knew he was really out to kill me, and my friends and I had foiled him this time. He quickly turned and ran away through the trees. 
We didn't know whether he would come back and try to break in or something, so we called the police again. And lo and behold, sirens within minutes and officers with their guns drawn combing the area. They caught him a few hours later, still with the 22 in his hand. He confessed. He was indeed going to try to kill me if he had the chance, but he didn't want to take pot shots at me with my friends there. Apparently, since I had broken up with him, I was, quote, given over to Satan, and he had a duty to make sure I died and went to hell. Of course, he went to jail and later to a mental hospital, and I moved out of that dorm a week later. I just couldn't live with the thought that he could break out and come after me again. I got some cop friends to keep an eye on my roommates until they could move out too. I was never really the same after that. I was so afraid and paranoid for years and years. Now I can be out and about without any fear, but I still have nightmares about him staring at me through the trees, gun in hand and rage in his eyes. I want to jump off that Let's Not Meet story to talk about something very important, at least if you're in America. The Supreme Court is hearing a very critical case right now, and it's about whether or not domestic abusers can legally own and purchase weapons. The case is United States versus Rahimi, and I'm going to read a portion of this New York Times article to give you some context. The case started in 2019 when Zaki Rahimi, a drug dealer in Texas, assaulted his girlfriend and threatened to shoot her if she told anyone, leading her to obtain a restraining order. The order suspended Mr. Rahimi's handgun license and prohibited him from possessing firearms. Mr. Rahimi defied the order in flagrant fashion, according to court records. He threatened a different woman with a gun, leading to charges of assault with a deadly weapon. Then, in the space of two months, he opened fire in public five times. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit in New Orleans said that he was hardly a model citizen, but they vacated his conviction, which was a conviction under federal law that makes it a crime for people subject to domestic violence, orders to have guns, and they vacated this conviction on the basis that the law violated the Second Amendment. This case is huge, and it could really mean life or death for a lot of domestic abuse victims. And it has also drawn criticism and backlash and protests from mass shooting victims as well. Camille Paradis, 19, who survived the Sandy Hook shooting in 2012 when a gunman killed 20 children at an elementary school in Connecticut, came to protest outside the Supreme Court with her sister, and both of them urged the justices to keep guns out of the hands of domestic abusers. Ms. Paradis said the issue resonated with her because the gunman in the Sandy Hook massacre had committed an act of domestic violence by fatally shooting his mother before opening fire at the school. And she's quoted as saying, I have a very different perspective as a survivor, and I just feel that it's super important for me to come down here. The fact that they're even debating this at all, and even considering upholding the Fifth Circuit's ruling, is just very hard and very upsetting. And this is what the New York Times says could happen next. The court will probably not issue a decision until June. Now that the arguments in the Rahimi case are complete, the justices will cast tentative votes at a private conference in the coming days. The senior justice and the majority will then assign the majority opinion to a colleague or, just as likely, keep it. Draft opinions, almost certainly including concurrences and dissents, will be prepared and exchanged. On average, it takes the Supreme Court about three months after an argument to issue a decision. But rulings in a term's biggest cases, and this one certainly qualifies, tend not to arrive until June, no matter how early in the term they were argued. 
And according to the New York Times and most other media reporting on this, said it seems likely that the Supreme Court is ready to rule that the government may disarm people under domestic violence orders. This next story is titled, Creepy Santa Man. This happened when I was 13. I'm a girl, and in the 8th grade. The middle school I went to was about a 15-minute walk, so not very far. For context, my older brother and I grew up in East LA in a small house that had a metal gate, and both the front and back doors had a black metal screen door and a wooden door. During the day, we would always leave the wooden door open and have the black metal door closed and locked. Except this day. That day, I came home from school and had about an hour before anyone else would be home. I was really thirsty, so I rushed inside, grabbed a drink, and sat down at the kitchen table, which was about 10 feet away from the front door. I heard the metal gate open and was surprised as no one should have been coming home that early. I got up to see who it was and I saw an older man, probably in his 60s. He had short white hair and a long white beard. He was wearing an ACDC t-shirt, torn jeans, and sunglasses. I remember thinking he looked a lot like Santa Claus, but dirty and creepy. He knocked on the metal screen door and asked if my parents were home. I was a dumb kid and said they weren't. He got a smile on his face and said that he collected donations for needy children. I said sorry, but I didn't have any money. He said sometimes children donated old toys. I said I didn't have any old toys to donate. He insisted that I must have some toys I didn't want anymore. He was beginning to creep me out and I noticed I hadn't locked the door when I came inside. I tried to keep my cool as I slowly and very carefully locked the door. I kept him talking so he wouldn't notice. A minute or two later, he wouldn't leave, so I decided I would pretend to check for toys and then say I didn't have any so he would hopefully leave. I told him I would go to check, and as I turned and took a few steps down the hall, I clearly heard him yank at the door trying to open it. I didn't want him to know I had heard him, so I kept walking down the hall and into a room. I didn't have a cell phone, and the only phone in the house was in the kitchen. I thought about what to do and decided to stick with my plan. After about two or three minutes, I walked out, hoping he had left. Nope. Creepy Santa Man was still there. I told him sorry, but I didn't find anything. He sighed and said all right, he would check another time. He left and walked across the street. I watched him from the kitchen window peeking through the blinds as he just stood there, staring at my house for about 45 minutes. My brother and a few of his friends finally came walking down the street. As my brother came inside and his friends kept walking down the street, the man walked around the corner and disappeared. I told my brother what happened and he walked outside to look but creepy Santa man was long gone. When my mom came home, we told her what happened and she called the police, but they said to call back if he showed up again. Thankfully, he never showed up. So, creepy Santa man, let's not meet. So that's all for the let's not meet stories, and now I want to give a little update about Patreon. I initially just wanted to pause the Patreon for a few months and just get ahead with bonus content and stuff, but Patreon's user interface is not the best, and one month it actually charged the Patreon members when it was still supposed to be paused, so I went ahead and made bonus content, but to stop that from happening again, I unpublished the tier, so the people in the Palermortis tier still have access to all of the bonus content, but no one else can join. So the plan for that now is I'll be relaunching slash publishing the Palermortis tier on January 1st, 2024, which isn't too far away. 
This tier is going to stay $5 a month and has all the same benefits it's had, an hour bonus content, a shout out on the podcast when you join. But I think the majority of the bonus content is going to be me narrating books slash short stories in the realm of true crime and criminology. That'll be the majority of the content of the hour a month, and then the rest will be a combination of r slash let's not meet stories, recent crimes in the news, little mini episodes covering cases. I've also created a new tier. It's called the Accomplice tier, and it is only a dollar a month, and you can become a member now if you want to. Members in that tier will receive ad-free episodes, early access when available if I finish early, newspaper clippings and images alongside episodes, and those will be clippings and images that do or don't make it into a video version of the Spotify episodes, or if I just don't do a video version at all, I'll still be posting those clippings and images. And also a shout out on the podcast when you join. And if you're in the Palermornis tier, you'll get everything from the Accomplice tier plus an hour of bonus content every month. If you're not ready to join a tier yet and you just want to wait it out, you can always join the Patreon for free and just follow me and you'll see posts that are marked as everyone. So if you want to stay in a loop on Patreon, I'll be posting links to when I make posts on other social media platforms and just be updating y'all about anything and everything to do with the podcast. A couple people saw the new Patreon tier and decided to join already, so thank you to Special K and Caitlin L for joining the Accomplice tier. But yeah, that's about it for the Patreon updates. Um, Don't forget to tune in next week for another episode. I've already picked out the case I'm going to talk about, and it's one of the most wild cases I've had never heard of before, and hopefully it'll be new to y'all as well. But anyways, I hope you all have a good day, evening, or night. Goodbye.